Hello, welcome to the 831 podcast. It's been a while since I've done one of these with an introduction on it, but uh, we are back. Uh, strange times, the lockdown. So we're back recording from the lockdown period now. I've, bought, I've bought, put a couple of these out recently, especially on the YouTube 831 channel. So go over there and have a look at the 831 channel on YouTube. But I put a few of these out. This is the first one I've done it with a introduction and stuff at the beginning again so we're hopefully gonna get back into this flow i'm gonna start trying to do everything i do as a video i'm gonna export the audio and put this straight up as well onto however you get your podcast format you know because you're listening i assume um as always just take care of a few little things and say that this podcast is sponsored by first of all trojan nutrition uh trojan nutrition trojan fitness in Bristol, been my long-term sponsors and will continue to be sponsors of this podcast till the end. So big shout out to those guys. The Cloud Seller Limited um, in Bristol, they hook me up with CBD and they take care of all your vaping needs, etc. Tommy's a great guy. Just let him know that you follow the podcast and you're a friend of mine and you'll get discounts. There is an online discount code. I think it's the Immortal. You'll have to check. I think you get 10% with that one. But yeah, I will clarify that later on so this is these podcasts are sponsored by them but yeah basically the world's a strange place at the moment just all try and do as much as we can to keep each other going hopefully these are helping you or whenever you're choosing to listen to them but i'll continue to put them out i've got three or four people lined up to get through in the next few days so there should be a few more podcasts coming your way and i'll do my best to keep them coming regularly now hopefully from the off the back of this lockdown we fall into a trap where i i constantly start churning these out again so they will keep coming but until then this is episode 24 i believe mark over i met mark about two and a half years ago during my first ever open mic comedy set mark was there and he was the headline came on and did uh like 15 20 maybe 25 minutes absolutely killed it smashed it i remember watching him and just being in awe that he was so dominant in his performance and that performance alone is a big part of why i've stuck with comedy as in writing and stuff because i haven't had as much chance to perform what with coaching and fighting myself but watching that performance helps me stick with comedy and makes me keep writing knowing that this is where I'm heading. I want to head in the stand-up comedian that direction. So, yeah, it, it was great to sit down and talk with Mark. I mentioned it the night I saw him and he said, yeah, he'd love to do it. So now this has given us the time and hopefully you'll enjoy the podcast as well. He's so experienced, one of the most experienced UK comedians. So it's worth a listen. It's lighthearted, it's fun, and I think you'll enjoy it. And if nothing more discover who mark oliver is and start following him don't worry about me follow mark oliver you know he's the one who should shine out of this so yeah this was um the 831 podcast number 24 from lockdown situation and it is with my now good friend mark oliver i hope you enjoy Okay, Mark, thank you very much for joining me. As we were saying just a second ago, it's been a long time coming. Um, I believe I met you as I did my first ever open mic night up at the Oxford. 
That's right. What would that be about two and a half years ago? Yeah, probably something like that. About two and a half years. I uh, just a chance meeting, I guess, and then so I did my first ever open mic. You were obviously there, and you came on at the end. And as soon as I saw you do your your set, I was like, "Wow!" Like I need to speak to this guy because, like, not like from a com- from a comedy point of view, you were superb. You blew me away that night. You had like this. Uh, you did this set that made me feel like it was. You had like a rehearsed little story bit, but then the sort of unrehearsed and off the cuff improvisation bit was just. I was just struck at how polished it seemed for something that was so <laughs> off the fly, you know. And I was like, "Wow, I need to speak to this guy." And I believe I came up to you and said about doing a podcast that night. Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean. Literally, nothing will ever get a comedian to do a podcast quicker than someone saying how much they enjoyed their set. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> we're, we're very, very easily led. And it is, like, I do try and make it a kind of a mix between the stuff I know I'm going to say. So, uh, I've got sort of enough material from doing it for the years. But I also really like not knowing what's going to happen and just seeing, you know, playing in the room, being in the room and just going with the flow of it, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that was the vibe that I got off you that night, is that you just, um, you looked so, so happy and infused. Like I've, I've, I've been to a lot of sort of um, small comedy gigs over the years because obviously I've been interested in comedy for a long time before I was even really writing i've gone to a lot of small comedy and some comedians you i sort of feel like they're almost bored of doing their material or they're just trying to work out one tiny little bit in the middle so there's no enthusiasm apart from this one little small section then there's back to no enthusiasm again but you just yeah you just gave me this uh you gave me this insight that i'll just like it's like it was energetic it was powerful there was like little hints of anger and little hints of like funny it was just great and that's why i thought i've got to talk to this guy you know what it's one of the things i don't know when you'll put this podcast out but obviously we're recording it in the middle of uh the lockdown and and that's the thing that hits me the most at the moment when you say that thing i look like i was happy to be up there like it's it is the place where i'm most comfortable in the world is on stage is whether it's doing TV warm up, whether it's doing stand up, whether it's comparing a festival. Like I just love it. I like I just feel so at home being uh, being now. I was talking to someone the other day about the first thing they'll do when it finishes, and people were like, "I'll go for a beer, or I'll go to the cinema, or I'll you know I'll go out with my friends." I'm like get me back on stage just like get me get me strong crawling at the walls to get back on stage <laughs> what does your um what does your everyday life look like away from the lockdown uh what does everyday life look like for you what do you what's generally a, a monday to friday do you know what it's it's a monday to sunday because tv shows and comedy you know will will happen whenever and and often i gig five or six times a week uh sometimes more sometimes i can do 14 or so in a row and just keep going um i work in london a lot 
So although I live in Bristol, I work in London loads and so I'm away. So I'll often stay in hotels, maybe four nights a week. Um, some TV shows film my call time, which is the time you turn up. So yeah. you usually turn up about an hour, hour and a half before you're meant to go on. Um, and that's often about five o'clock at night, six o'clock at night. Um, sometimes it's later and sometimes it's earlier. Sometimes it can be 10 o'clock in the morning if you've got a show, a daytime show, because a lot of those quiz shows you do three or four in a day. So I don't really have a kind of a normal day, really. It is just sort of hotels, bit of food, do a bit of a gig, maybe meet friends, maybe have proper meetings, work on little projects that I'm working on. But really, it is kind of all focused on those few hours where I'm at the gig or in the TV studio. Yeah. So what does... um. You, so are you sort of, do you get contracted to a TV show or you just sort of, you're freelance, you bounce around and when someone calls you in, you just, how does that work? You're just like assigned to a yeah. TV network or? Yeah, so I'm freelance and uh, I don't really have, you don't really have contracts specifically to do like a whole series or something. Um, because if you imagine when you're freelance, there's loads of different shows happening you sometimes have to kind of do one that week and not do that one, or you can go from there to there. And some TV shows will happen in, sometimes you you can record a whole series of something, a whole six part series in, that'll be on the telly for two and a half months. And you can record that in two days. Yeah. Whereas other times you can have a show that's live, like the last leg, and that'll be 10 weeks in a row on a Friday night. So it all depends on when they're filming. It all depends on uh, what they're filming. Uh, it depends on who you know who's on that show. So I'll get phone calls and emails from production managers and directors and producers and stuff like that. And they'll ask me to, you know, I'll, basically they say, can we have a look at your diary? Which is always, let's see what I've got free and, and how much time I've got really. Yeah. Perfect. That's uh, like I, I, that is something that I did often query. So for well, if you're doing say the chase, let's say, and then that ends, then are you like scrambling around for work and where? I mean, I guess the the lifestyle of a stand up comedian is you're always scrambling around to perform. You're always trying to get on the next stage in the next stage. But when you go into the the sector that I guess you're in, in in the warm up and stuff, I didn't know. I was often wondering, are you just bouncing from one TV show to the next, or is there big gaps? You're like, shit, no one's took me on. What do I do? I mean, I'm in the biggest gap I've ever had. <laughs> with <what's laughs> at the moment. But in so if you think about it, in the country, there's loads of comedy clubs and theatres and gigs and pubs and blah, 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 um, in terms of the venues. But in TV, there's, there's only about, there's probably less than 10 TV studios, like big ones. Uh, Manchester, Pinewood, uh, Elstree, London Studios. Yeah, so there's a there's ten or so, which means if you think about it, I'm not the only one waiting. So all these big TV shows, when all this finishes, when all this nonsense finishes, and we're back making TV again, all these production companies are going to be fighting each other to try and get 
the slots into the studios that they've been waiting for because there's only a finite number of them. And so what that'll probably mean, hopefully, is that when it all does come back, I'll just be even busier than normal because they'll just boom, boom, boom. They'll just want to keep keep going back. But it's like, do you know what? It is like anything. I imagine it's like uh, sport and fighting and um, anything that's a bit freelance, whether it's a sports person, whether it's a creative person. You just got to wait for the work to come to you, right? And then you yeah. just sort of <laughs> you say you grab it with both hands. Yeah, exactly. That's like the fight world is. I'm ready to fight. Let's get an agent to get me a fight. So my agent will say, look, and say, well, there's this fight's been offered, or I'll stay in shape so I can take something last minute, unless you sign for, say, the UFC, and then they very much dictate when you fight. You know, they're going to call up people as and when you want them, but then you're one of, say, 500 fighters in the pool of their athletes. So you're almost better to be freelance and fighting everywhere else because I could bounce from one fight I'm not injured, fight again in a week. I'm not injured, fight again in four weeks, as opposed to being with the UFC, or we're only going to maybe use you three times a year, you know? So oh, okay. very- Like when when you start, so if we compare, like, comedy to, to MMA, like, when you start doing stand-up, you do open spots where you turn up somewhere. Is it a little bit like that with fighting, then? Yeah, kind of. It's one of those things where you start with say local shows or any show in the UK and I mean if you're a fighter who's willing to fight you could fight every weekend because there's so many pullouts and there's so many you know just like people who don't turn up to, to low uh, comedy open comedy spots you know someone wants to book their spots instead of being walk-on spots somebody doesn't show up it's the same with MMA on the night somebody's ready to fight and their fighters just not bothered to show up so it's very th- those two things they are, there is a, a big similarity in them in that you know, you can just walk up and you can have it. No, you can't turn up on the day, but uh, you will have somebody who knows or your teammate might be fighting on the show. So you can say, well, I could fight, but they need someone next weekend today. Yeah, they need someone. Okay, I'll fight. So generally, you can just find a fight here, there and everywhere at that level, you know? And everyone remembers, as a comic, everyone remembers their first open mic night, the first gig they ever did. You remember yours? I was there. Like... Did every fighter remember their first proper fight? Or have you been training for quite a long time before? Um, Even if you've been training for quite a long time, this is the bit that, as a coach, this is the bit that I try to... Some coaches I've seen over the years don't do this. I really think you need to... You really need to coach the person away from fighting. You need to coach them in the last couple of days up to a fight because... No matter how prepared you think you are, no matter how much training you've done, how many times you've been punched in the face, there's a different feeling emotionally, physically, psychologically when you're going to go into a cage and you're going to fight another man who wants to take your consciousness. When we're training, <laughs> when we're training, people do get knocked out every now and again. It's really rare. You're quite well padded. Everyone just you don't want to hurt your partner because you haven't got someone to train with. But in a fight, you're trying to separate the person from their consciousness. Now. It's very different. I mean, it would be like, I guess, rehearsing your your set at home in front of the mirror and then walking up to the microphone for the first time. That's That feeling, it's exactly the same. Everyone remembers their first walk, their first warm-up, the first, you know, when they looked across from their opponent. I can tell you exactly how I felt, what my music was, what time it was when I had my first ever fight, but I couldn't tell you anything about my fourth. 
I probably wouldn't even be able to remember off the top of my head who my fourth opponent was. Because it then it doesn't become second nature, but it's not your first time. You'll only you'll only make your first ever walk to the cage or to the mic once. Every other time after that will be subsequent. So that first time, yeah, is I guess very similar. So this is a question. I always reckon, especially as I've been gigging for quite a while now, I can spot if someone does their first ever gig or their first couple of gigs, even if the audience don't get it, even if they're a bit rubbish, uh, I can still I can still see something in them if I think they're going to be a good comic. If they take a risk, if they die on stage horrendously, but I can see something in them. Yeah. Is it the same with fighting? If someone just goes down on their first fight straight away, can you still go, oh, do you know what? That didn't go well for them. But I know that they've probably got something in them. Yeah, I mean, maybe not so much from, it depends how long the fight goes, maybe not so much if I don't know the person or I don't coach them. But from a coach point of view, so one of my fighters who's just retired, he fought a couple of weeks ago, he just retired now, Chris Ogden. Um, his first ever fight, he got knocked out, lost his first fight. Now, I watched it and I was like, what? What the fuck are you doing? Like, what that? This isn't you. That's not how you fight. What You've got everything wrong. The game plan was wrong. Your style went out the window. But I can look at him and the moment it happens, I don't think, oh, that's enough for him. I think I sigh a bit and I'm like, oh, man, that, I've got to get you to believe what I believe about you and your ability yeah. and I have to get you to find a way to bring that out because you can do it on pads, you can do it in sparring. I need you to find a way to get that out of you. And that's from a coach point of view, that's what that's what I do. And that obviously that will come from being a fighter as well and from being a coach for so long. But yeah, I can look at them and I can think, yeah, that's those. This is the thing with fighting that I say to everyone. Let's take a pro fight. A pro fight is 15 minutes or three five-minute rounds for you to represent everything you have learned in your whole MMA career. You have 15 minutes to make everything go right. If you make one mistake in that 15 minutes, the other person should be good enough to capitalize and end it. That's fighting, you know? So in order to get everything on the night, to not have a slightly upset stomach, to not let the nerves get you a little bit, to not hurt your ankle a little bit when you've been warming up, to have all these little things come into place, plus manage the mental, the physical and the emotional for 15 minutes of your life is really difficult. Really, really difficult. Um, do you always... So, again, I think it's really interesting, the parallels between comedy and fighting... Uh, especially the fact that in comedy we tend to use words like I absolutely died on my ass," or I killed it or I smashed it or I wrecked it or I annihilated it. So all the, so much of the language we use is the language of fighting. Um, but have you, um, I always say to people, you learn more from the gigs you do badly than the gigs you do well. So when you're doing stand-up, if you do well all the time, you're never going to become a better comic because you just rely on it. Is that the same with fighting? Do you learn more when it goes badly? So as a coach, you can go, uh, you can work on something if it goes badly. Yeah. So for, for me, 100%, uh, people are so very different. And I guess, like you know, another one of the parallels between comedy and 
fighting is that so many different people can and do do it, but so many different people are doing it for completely the wrong reasons as well. Oh. So, so like somebody might go into fighting because they want to prove that they're tough, want to prove that they're hard, they want to prove that they're, and they don't learn anything from their experience. And like I say to those people, you're going to go nowhere. I know that because you're, this isn't about being tough and about being strong. You have to learn, you have to analyze, and you have to uh, be able to know that actually I'm a lot shitter than this person. No matter, your, your mates are just going to watch you go and fight and think you're the hardest man in the world. They're not going to understand that 95% of people in the gym can absolutely put it all over you. Um, so it's the same thing. You, you make a couple of people laugh, I guess. Uh, people are going to think you're funny, but you go to the next room and nobody laughs at exactly the same stuff because it's audience specific, maybe. If you're not willing to go back and have a look and say, right, what what did go wrong? Why didn't that work here? Why couldn't I catch this person? I mean, if I if I train a fighter to fight a southpaw fighter and I don't teach him anything about what a southpaw does, he's going to start getting hit from the opposite side all the time. He's going to step the wrong way and get tagged. So you have to take these fighters find mistakes that they make and you have to say to them like, well, or they have to, I, I've had to analyze what I've done wrong. Now the best way to analyze what you've done wrong is when you've really fucked up and you've lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if you get choked unconscious or knocked out or there's no better way to to go and sit down and think something really went wrong there because I've had a fight where things have gone wrong, but you know, I've had to mentally be tough and come back the next round and win the fight. And you almost forget what went wrong because you came back from it. But when it goes really wrong and you lose, as a fighter, you should be able to sit down and analyze. Or you should, not even that you should be able to, you should want to so badly. You would even encourage your coach to say, listen, I need to know what went wrong. I need to know how I can work on it. Um, but then you get some people who, who don't think that way and they're not really interested in doing it. They're just like, right, I want to get back in there. I want to do it again. It's like, yeah, I know you do, but you, you want to do that again? Like, don't just assume you're going to be better next time. Find a way to make yourself better. One of the questions that comics get quite a lot, and one of the things people say is, like, oh, God, he's brave, that, isn't it? Oh, he's brave getting up there in front of all of those people doing stand-up. Oh, God, I don't know how you do it. And you just use the phrase, choked unconscious. And I'm like, well, I think that might be the brave one. That, I mean, it just... It blows my mind. I when people say to me about you know being being nervous doing stand up, I'm like, come on, what's the worst that can happen? Genuinely, you go into. I got into comedy. Most people do, uh, and I know you did. Even if you don't admit it, you go because you go and see gigs, and someone will die on their ass, and you'll go, oh, do you know what? If they can die on their ass, I'm going to be absolutely fine because if they die on their ass. What's the worst that can happen? They just walk away. But with fighting, like, what's the worst that can happen? Well, you literally can be choked unconscious. Like, that is <laughs> the worst. I like. Well, I find that I find it absolutely. Well, sometimes, sad. sometimes being choked unconscious is quite like. So I remember I did this. There's a grappling. Really, just about to finish that sentence with sometimes being choked unconscious is actually all right. Are you just about to say that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, oh, any, any activity that ends with the words choked and unconscious is not all right. Oh, I'm interested.
to see how you're going to justify this. So, well, I was a, um, there's a competition called NAGA, North American Grappling Association. All it is is it's it's just grappling. So there's no punches, kicks, or anything. It's just jujitsu. So we, I'm in the expert division. One of my students, who I teach, is in the expert division. We're both at the same weight category. I go out, I have my first grappling match, I win it by submission, so I'm through to the next round. He goes out, has his first match, he gets guillotined, which is a front choke, and he loses. He comes back, and he's like, oh man, I'm gutted. I was like, don't worry, the guy's good, don't worry, but it's me in the next round now, so I can redeem it for you. So the kid comes up to me, he goes, oh, I think I'm with you now. I said, oh, that's what he goes, you're Wesley Murray, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. He said, oh, I watched you. I grew up watching you do MMA and I've seen like five or six of your fights live in person. It's good. Whatever happens is going to be an honour to grapple with you. I was like, oh, look, thanks. You shook his hand and stuff. And I was like, that is it. I'm choking this guy. Just choked my student. So we go back and I take him, take him down. I'm known for having quite good wrestling. So I take him down and he goes for a guillotine choke. I was like, ha, 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 no way. So I jump past the other side and then something I've never done in my whole career and I've never done since. I step back into the choke and I can feel the choke is super tight. I was like, oh, fuck, I can't get out of this. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to have to go unconscious. I can't let him, I can't tap to this now. So I let myself go unconscious. Boom, go unconscious. So the next minute, I don't realise I'm going to go unconscious until I'm led on my back and I'm eyes closed. And I'm like, this is quite peaceful. And I <laughs> thought, oh, oh, shit, this ain't meant to be peaceful. I woke up and he is holding my legs in the air to get me to come, to get me to get conscious. <laughs> I open my eyes, I see him. He's like, all right, dude. I'm like, yeah, all right, dude. <laughs> I'm like, this guy who has just come up and told me that he thinks I'm great. It's just choked me unconscious. And I was holding my legs as I regain consciousness. <laughs> so I wake up, come off the mat, ambulance is there. And I'm like, you need to come. I was like, no, I've got to do the, I need to fight now for bronze medal. But no, you need to go. I was like, listen, I've been choked unconscious. I'm going to be fine. I need to fight for bronze medal. So I go back out and I fight and I win bronze medal. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, going unconscious in in actuality in MMA. It's not a bad thing unless you're being knocked unconscious or getting hit with a head kick. Being choked unconscious is I'm going to be unconscious. I might pee my pants, but that's about it. So, um, what we're doing uh, this is a podcast, but. Uh we're recording it through skype so i can see my own face and i wish the people listening to this could see the look of utter horror and incredulousness on my face when you were explaining (laughs) i'll upload the video to youtube anyway on the 831 account so if you're just listening go back just to see mark's face during that (laughs) because it's totally it's totally not my world like it's totally uh, like I don't mind, I don't mind following a bit of the boxing. So when you know Anthony Joshua was fighting last, and when uh, Fury was fighting last, you know I'm interested in it. Um, um, I've never really followed uh, MMA. Every now and then, so I live in Brislington in South Bristol, and every now and then I'll be Miss Millie's Chicken in uh, in Brislington Village, and I would have known that there's been a fight in like. Witchurch or somewhere like that because mm. late at night when I'm coming back from work all suited and booted about four or five lads will come in just you know in sports gear covered in blood and I'll be like oh okay something's happened but it's it's a it's a world it's a culture that I know 
nothing about and i find it absolutely fascinating and i find it absolutely fascinating and it blows my mind that that you love it <laughs> like I, so i i agree i find it a bit strange that people because i'm right at the end of my career i'm at a juncture where i'm weighing up whether i'm going to continue to do this or whether i'm going to step away and focus on some avenues that i really want to pursue are you still uh, fighting yeah, so I won, a, I won a world title last year. I knocked a guy out with a head kick, um, stepped in eight weeks' notice, thought at a higher weight, but and I really enjoyed it. I spar with all the guys at the gym, and I feel really good. My body feels great. I feel great, but we're learning so much about brain damage and stuff now that I don't really know if I want to continue to be punched in the head. I've been doing this over 18 years, you know, professionally, so I don't know if because of the other avenues that I want to pursue, uh, which involve a lot of writing, a lot of memory and a lot of cognitive ability. I notice changes in my in my ability to do those things after I've had hard training sessions. So I think I'm at a juncture where I'm sort of, you know, uh, realistically, I probably I may have one or two more. I may just say it's over. I'm not I'm not entirely sure whether I'm ready to walk away yet, but um I lost my train of thought there, but that's it. That's what it is. The, the brain damage. <laughs> um, but yeah, what, I mean, would, uh, what would you miss most about it? Like, because because that that's the thing about stand up is that I love stand up. I love doing it, but there is also the fact that so many of my friends are stand ups and the people I work with in TV and there's that kind of the camaraderie and there's that culture of it. Do you like that as well, or do you just? I like love the that. But I I love that, but I sort of have that anyway because I coach, so I have a fight team who I'm the head coach for. So now I'll go to a fight show like I did the other day. We've got six guys fighting. I have to wrap their hands, manage each person individually, know what to say to them, make sure they're prepared. Get So I almost go for a fight camp with them and I do everything but step into the cage. But the one thing that's actually missing from that process is stepping in the cage. That's When I'm there, I'm like, I'll fight right now. No matter what the weight, who the opponent our fight right now you know um but then when i walk away from that from that setting i do often then remind myself that brain damage is real we're learning loads about it now people are really suffering and i'm going to be lucky to escape with if i if i get like mediocre symptoms of cte or chronic brain injury i'm going to be really lucky so to continue to do that knowing this do I want to be 65 and really suffering from early onset dementia or something? Or is it something that I could have avoided? And these are questions that I ask myself all the time. So I don't know. My, my motives for fighting now would probably be, oh, I should fight because in a minute I won't be able to because I'll be too old and I'll wish that I had. As opposed to I really want to fight because I really want to achieve something. I want to be someone. I've sort of, other than being in the UFC, um, that was always my goal. Realistically, I'd need to win probably four good fights now to get in the UFC, which is probably a year's work. So other than being in the UFC, what else can I achieve? I've fought all over the world. I've had good rankings. I've won world titles. I've What what more is there to achieve personally for me now? There's probably not anything that I couldn't achieve through training other people in MMA. How old are you? 37. 37. Do you not have a little bit of an ambition to just become a fat old man, just become <laughs> old man, just step away. And then in five years time, 
wander back into these gyms as a big fat old man, and everyone will go, "Oh, that was where he used to win world championships." And they'll go, "Come on, that's not real. Look at him. <laughs> just be lazy for the rest of your life." I just like so. I was saying you're the only that you never relax, and of course I do. And then I realise I don't because. I base jump, I skydive, I paraglide, I go fishing, I do, and everything I do, I'm doing something. I'm never doing nothing, and the thought of doing nothing absolutely terrifies me. The thought of looking at a clock and 15 minutes has gone by, and I'm like, I'm never getting them back. What the fuck have I done? How are you coping coping with the lockdown then? Because you can't do any of that stuff. Uh, So lockdown for me has been brilliant, because in my daily life, I'm in the middle of writing a book. Um, I'm in the middle of another little project that I'm writing. Both involve heavily involve writing. So I try and do about an hour's writing a day, not what, before I was in lockdown. I try and do about an hour's writing a day. And in that time, I, I like to do my book that I'm working on. I like to write stand-up comedy. And I like to work this other project that I'm working on. So an hour a day is nowhere near long enough. But now I get up in the morning, I yoga, I meditate. I sit down, I write maybe two hours of solid writing straight off the back. Um, I am having to do, because I've been doing these online quizzes and stuff um, through Facebook Live for, for the lockdown. I've been writing them as well. But then i then been doing some jujitsu with my dad, teaching my dad jujitsu. I'm filming that. Um, I've been feeding the birds and stuff. Then I train. Then after I train, I sit down and I write a bit more. And for me, there's not, there's still not enough time. I'm like, I'd like more, more, unless I deprive myself of sleep for no reason now. There's not, I want more time to do more of this writing because I get lost in my writing, especially when it's my book, I don't, because it's quite structured. But if I'm writing comedy, sometimes I just get lost and I write stuff and I'm like, well, this is going to be absolutely useless for on stage, but I enjoyed writing it, you know? A hundred percent. When you're, when you're writing, just, don't have a filter just keep going just do what you want to do especially stand up you know just have fun with it because that should be the thing i suppose this whole conversation about the parallels between stand up and mma i think at heart i think everything has to be about enjoying it because if you don't enjoy it you're just not going to be very good at it yeah i mean i've seen people during this lockdown and they're saying i can't wait to get back to work Okay. Oh, I'm so bored. I can't wait to get back to work. And I'm like, like it saddens me. I'm like, you, you're miss. I know people like going to work, but we're talking like carpet fitters, carpenters, and like people who just work. I'm like, it saddens me. I'm like, you. There's an emptiness inside of you that you don't even know. There's so much creativity in every single person that they haven't found the way to channel it. I'm like, if only you, if only you could. Find the outlet for what's inside of you, other than going to work to pass time, or because that's the the repetitive, um, repetitive nature that you've fallen into. If only you could find what it is, it would channel that that creativity in you. And like all of you, all of you have got brilliance in you. Find it, you know. But no, they're like, I just want. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could go back to work. I'm bored at home, and I'm like, something inside me wants to scream, you know. Yeah, but you know, I think there's a there's a couple of sayings. There's one where if you find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life, which I think is a really is a really good one. But also, so before becoming a comic, I was a careers advisor, so I used to work with young offenders uh, 
and in schools giving them careers advice. Um, and I would always say, like, find something that you like and something that you can do. And if you can find a way of combining those two things, you're going to be you're going to have the job that you love. So if you are a carpet fitter, but you also love Bristol City or you love football, then if you can work out how to get a job as the person that fits carpets in football stadium around the UK, then you've absolutely nailed your job. So, you know, I think that's kind of I, I couldn't do it. I mean, this is this whole thing has taught me. I knew it already, but it's reinforced the fact that I couldn't have a normal job. I couldn't work in an office. I couldn't do a nine to five. I couldn't do the same thing over and over. Just just not for me. <laughs> yeah. And I guess if everyone if everyone did channel their creativity and if everyone did have an outlook, nobody would come to stand up comedy or go to the theatre or would go to because or at least fewer would because they it's so much an outlet for some for some people. It's so much they look at stand-up comedians and theatre and, and people in the theatre or ballet dancers. They look at them and they're like, "Wow, if only I could express myself that way," you know. So some people are so immersed in their life and and they love it. And it's not that's not me berating people who are that way, but so many people are that when you go and you see uh, creativity personified or an exhibition of it. That, that's the draw for them. And I guess that's how comedians, ballet dancers, singers, I guess that's why they make their money because they can express their self well, And sports people as well and athletes mm -hmm. as well. You know, And do you know what? You're right. Maybe we should stop telling people to have jobs they enjoy. Maybe we should keep them where they are so they can keep coming to watch us do what we <laughs> A dictatorship by the theatrical. I like it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Keep, keep them in their place, thank you very much. I'm always, there's a lot, because there's so many more comics now, there's so many more stand-ups, and there is a thing where we're just like, yeah, just don't tell them, just, just don't tell them how to do it, because there's already too many of them. Shh, keep it a secret. So, uh, but I'm not like that, because I love, I love stand-up, and I love, uh, I love the fact that anyone can do it. That's what I like about stand-up. I love the fact that, you know, a bit like, uh, a bit like football where you can just play football in your house with rolled up bits of newspaper and jumpers for goalposts. You know, that's, that's to me what stand-up is. You know, everyone's facing in the right direction. You can pretty much give it a go, really. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my fondest bits of it, is it? It's so very... You go to a stand-up open mic night and sometimes you cringe, you're sat there, you feel bad for some people, they're like dying on their ass and nobody's really getting it and you're like, oh, this is, and you're watching and you're watching sort of through like squinted eyes and then somebody gets on next and they absolutely kill and you love it and then at the end of the night someone goes, oh, the first guy, the guy you were swearing, they loved him, they thought, and it's like, it's <laughs> for everyone, it's, everyone gets it, you know, and I'm in no position to tell somebody to do it or not do it, I just tell everyone to do it because I'm one of those people. I'm like, if there's something you want to do, do it. What's the worst that happens? I mean, people say to me all the time, oh, aren't you worried that you'll die? And I'm like, no, I really want to die on stage. I really want to, like, bomb. I really want to... I, because <laughs> the two parallels are you bomb. No one laughs. It's horrendous. It's awkward. And it's really bad. And the next one is everyone laughs at your jokes. Well... I've been to a night, I've done a gig where everyone laughed at all my jokes that I did in my five-minute set. And I'm like, 
That was amazing. Everyone on the night got it. That was brilliant. But I've not bombed really badly. And I'm waiting to, and I want to, because between the two parallels is the the what you're going to experience most of the time, I should imagine. So that's finding that middle of the road, experience both of them. It's going to be a lot easier to find the middle of the road, I would have thought, you know? Yeah, it's also that thing that you see, we were talking at the beginning about uh, the tough guy who wants to do M&A because he's a tough guy. And in comedy, that's the equivalent of that is, you know, the guy who's really funny in his office and uh, makes, and he's like, oh, I could do comedy, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe they'll do it and all their friends will come to the first gig and they'll do well. And maybe they'll flute the second gig. You always know if a comic is going to be a comic if when they have that horrendous one. And I'm not just talking about dying on your ass. I'm talking about traveling for five hours in a traffic jam or on a train and spending all that money and missing the last train home and having to go to work the next day and being in a nightmare situation and a horrible gig, being in that gig where everyone else does really well and you're the one that dies on your ass horrendously and then you have to go back home again. The people who you know are going to be okay at stand-up and have an all right career at it are the one who have those horrendous situations and go, oh God, I can't wait to do it again. You know, those are the ones. Yeah. Yeah. Where... where it's the, the worst, because it can be the worst thing, just because you, you have to do it for so long without getting paid, and you have to be, you know, you, and some of the places you go to, I imagine MMA happens all over the place, but I imagine there's a certain base level of where it happens. But comedy, you literally can rock up to a pub in the middle of nowhere, and no one's turned up. There's one person there. Well, two people there and you're like oh no but you've still got to do it you know it can be horrendous but it's also amazing so where where and how did it start for you what what sort of age did it start for you what was your what was the driving force behind you doing comedy and also how did you approach it from the beginning to, to like how you do now so i was I graduated from university in 1996, so I was 21. Started doing stand-up in 1998, late 98. I was about 23. Um, and I'd stand-up from a really early age. Like, as a kid, I loved stand-up. And not just... Because I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 45. Um, but you'll still remember that time when... Nowadays, people can just go on YouTube and find any stand-up that's ever lived and watch them. Whereas when I was a kid, when I was 15 or 16, you had to wait for the telly, you had to record stuff off the telly, you have to get albums and cassettes. So I loved old American stand-up, like Lenny Bruce and Mort Soul, and uh, I really got into Bill Hicks and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was a massive fan of stand-up. And then when I graduated from university, and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, and I came back to Bristol, um, and... I sort of had a slightly rubbish life, really, living at my mum and dad's house, didn't really know what to do. Someone I met was had started doing open spots, so I went to a couple of gigs of him. Uh, had already started writing stand-up, because I wrote things that I thought I wanted to do because they were like the stand-up that I loved. 
and thought, oh, well, I'll do it. And so I did it. I, I did a couple of gigs. I, my first ever gig uh, was a place called Virgin Murph, which was on Park Street, fortnightly. Um, and that was the, the... I went to watch it and put my name on the list for two weeks later. And actually, that first night I went to watch it was when I first met Russell Howard. So we met on that first night. We both put our names on the list. Me for the fortnight next. Russ for the fortnight after that, and um, didn't do very well, <laughs> but came off desperately wanting to do it again, desperately wanting to, wrote this five minutes that I knew backwards and forwards and in and out, and didn't really work, but I loved it, um, so just kept going, you know, kept going and going and going, and got addicted to it, and having Russell, we sort of, because we started at exactly the same time, we We'd go to gigs together and share lifts together and go everywhere and anywhere. If he found out about a gig, I'd go with him. If I found out about a gig, he'd come with me. And then gradually you have more people in the area who start doing the same sort of thing and you start going to gigs with them. And you sort of gradually, without even realising it, become a stand-up. So maybe someone will give you, eventually after a couple of months, a tenner for your petrol and then a couple of months after that 25 quid for a hotel if you're going down to Plymouth and then and before you know it all those little bits of money add up and you're like oh shit I could be a professional comic and so I went professional in 2004 so about five years later yeah and so how how often were you were gigging at every opportunity once you started Oh, yeah, yeah, every, every. I mean, I had a day job. I, I was working as a careers advisor, but I would, um, it was like a snowball. And gradually, the reason I gave up the day job was because I would have kept doing it, but I, the time just ran out. I just ran out of time to do the day job. Um, I would take everything and anything and doing weird gigs and hosting bands and hosting over 35 singles nights and just the worst things in the world because there's a big thing that people say about stand-up which i think is partly incredibly true which is stage time it's all yeah. about stage time i think as well it's also about gig miles which is not just how far you're going to travel for a gig but the different types of gigs that you do because if you travel around places you get different types of audiences, you get different types of gigs. And again, I imagine going back to fighting, I imagine it's the same. I imagine you could probably get a fighter who could be really good just fighting the people in his local area. But then as soon as he starts going to London or Manchester or starts going overseas or start, and you see different types of people in different environments, then that's when they could get shown up a little bit. And yeah. stand-ups like that. You know, you learn so much from as many different experiences as possible. Yeah, because like I've seen, um, I've seen a lot of people now because I've been around the scene a little while now, like the, the last two, let's say two and a half years since I did that. You've sort of been around the scene. Um, I, I have like a, I want to be gigging three, four nights a week, but because I've had guys fighting, I was getting prepared for a fight. I didn't, there was a, about seven or eight months where I didn't do a single gig because I was preparing for a fight and stuff. So it was to the point where now I resent almost doing other things because I can't get out and I can't gig 
So I know that after this lockdown's over, my focus will be to gig as much as I can. I don't have as much responsibility with guys fighting, etc. But um, I see some guys who are or guys and girls, and I'll see them. And then two months later, I'll see them again. And then they're still doing the same sort of stuff. Then I'll see them three or four months after that. And I'm like, wow, you're like, you're that's something different. Then I'll see them like six months after that. And they, for a solid year, just been gigging three or four. And I'm like, everything about you is so much different. The way you hold the mic, the way you now stand. And instead of walking the stage before, you lean on the microphone stand and it just added some presence. And, it's, and I look at these people and I'm like, that is like I say to people who say to me that they want to fight. Where's when can I fight? Well, you're doing one class a week. So at this point, 15 years time. Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you, and I'd see that in, in stand comedians. I watch them like this guy. I saw him, a, a kid called Morgan Reese from Bristol. Um, I, I saw Morgan a couple of years ago and he was, he, he went on one before me in an open mic thing. And uh, I would say he had probably about the same sort of laughs as I did, maybe a little bit more. Now, I watched him not long ago, maybe three months ago, and I, wa I was like, you are, like, you seem everything that is a polished comedian. When I'm watching you, I'm looking like, you seem to really be settled into who you are on stage, your jokes, your timing, everything. I thought the difference between watching you over the last couple of years is, is massive. I was really... And impressed. Morgan is a brilliant example the perfect example i would say of how uh, of how hard work does it really of how hard work helps you become a better comic i mean i'm interested in the parallels between fighting and comedy in the way that i'm interested in the parallels between everything and comedy the big difference i think the crucial difference is you can coach people so they can go to a gym a couple of nights a week uh, and they can work for a couple of hours. They can do it on their own, in their own gym at home, and they can do what they need to do. The thing about comedy, no matter how much you write, no matter how much you stand in front of a mirror, uh, you can't learn it in your house. The only way to learn it is in front of an audience. I always say to people, I don't know, I mean, you do so many things. I'm all, I wouldn't be surprised if you are also an accomplished musician. Can you play... A musical instrument can you do um i i have been known to bang out a rather superb air guitar okay uh, no, okay <laughs> no i um, yeah <laughs> um no i started to play the guitar and i just wanted to teach myself um the only thing is it, it's time for me that's the only thing for me is not having the time to do these things so no i'm not an accomplished musician if someone said to you now, as someone who was attempted to learn the guitar, yeah. if I said to you now, here, Wes, uh, here's a guitar. Uh, what I want you to do, uh, I want you to go out there in front of 200 people and I want you to play that guitar to those 200 people and sing songs and everything you do when you go out there, the music and the words and the songs are all original things that you yourself has made. Uh, you've never had this guitar before, but uh, good luck, mate. See you later. You'd look at me and go, well, that is the most ridiculous idea in the world. I'm going to spend six months or a year playing my guitar at home. Then I'm going to do another six months of writing songs and letting my friends see them. And then, and then maybe I might do a little gig where I do a couple of Oasis covers and I might throw in one of my own songs in the middle of it. 
with stand-up, you are, when you do a gig for the very first time, you are that person who's been given the guitar for the very first time because you're going out there to do that thing that you've never done before in front of strangers who, let's be honest, often take quite a lot of pleasure in you dying on your ass. And uh, and it's just wouldn't be. So when, I, so when I see new comics, when I see people not doing very well, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. But you're totally right there that you can tell when you see someone three months in advance, or three months gap, six months gap, 18 months, when you start seeing those people develop, when you start seeing their attitude, when I get messages from people, <clears throat> and Morgan did that loads. Morgan, again, a really good example, because Morgan is, of all the new acts in Bristol, one of the ones who would message me the most and ask me questions, still does only this week, ask me a question about something so conscientious and you can really tell the difference uh with someone like that when they start doing well yeah yeah and i was uh i i would morgan really stood out for me because i i gigged with him so early on and i've gigged with him i've subsequently gigged with him afterwards um i've been lucky to do some gigs that i probably shouldn't shouldn't have been on like i had a bucket split at a gig the other week and i'm like how am i like this is my 15th set and then i come off and the headliner's like, oh, awesome, I've not seen you gigging before. And I'm like, they're like, where'd you, I'm like, oh, it's like my 15th time. They're like, your 15th time. But I guess I've got that bit where I'm not scared or what, like, MMA would have done that for me. Also podcasting, also commentary, also presenting some stuff would have made, I've got like a, the presence is the wrong, a, a, I'm quite comfortable being in that limelight. And I think to myself, well, no one's going to punch me in the face tonight. And even if they do... I'm probably going to be able to punch him back. So there's like a... Comedy is a confidence game. Comedy, a lot of comedy is, even if you're not feeling confident, what's that phrase? Fake it till you make it. Like you, yeah. if you fake a bit of confidence when you get up there, um, the audience can go for it. Uh, sometimes, actually, there's a... Comedy can be really weird because you've got someone like James Acaster, mm -hmm. who is one of the best comedians in the world, has got this vibe about him that for certain people, he'd look like a bit of a dweeb. He'd look like uh, he wears his little jumpers and his little polo shirts and his trousers. Um, and he looks like that guy that might have worked in IT or in a library or something like that. And he doesn't do the big I am. But when he goes out on stage, he's in perfect command of everything yeah. that he does. And, and that's the thing about so many of my friends are those people in, in one sense they're not alphas they're not the the big i am a lot of us keep ourselves to ourselves a bit a little bit quiet but when they get out there boom they can be you know even if they're a bit deadpan even if they're a bit self-deprecating there's something about it where you own it and i do i feel more comfortable on on a stage in a tv studio than i feel <laughs> anywhere in the world like i totally that's the place where i'm like oh okay yeah i'm happy here and what like i guess so i don't know what your school life was like but i'm going to come on to that shortly but so i guess so if you're someone who are maybe like 
bullied for your appearance. I mean, I was never that person in school. I was always like the the jock. I was the, playing for the football team, and I fought. I was doing a high level judo in school, so I was known to be like the hard guy and all this sort of stuff. But um, still, you have your insecurities that go along with that. I have my insecurities about how did I look or what like. I'm not the best looking guy in the class or I'm not this because I was so I was known for being an athlete and I was known for being hard and all these things. I find insecurities elsewhere to focus on. Um, I'm which is why I love to make people laugh It's because making people laugh for me got rid of all those insecurities. Because if you think I'm funny and you know, I can run faster than you and I can probably. <laughs> so that I still find my insecurities though. But I guess as a stand up comedian, if you have, if you've been to a point where you've been bullied at school, like you're the ugly one, you're the fat one, you're the smelly one, or whatever it is, well, yeah, that's who I'm being now. That's I'm <laughs> taking the fun out of all the bits that you took out of because I embrace that's who I am. It's you know, it's a celebration. So, absolutely, all comedians are a really good mix of extrovert and introvert. All comedians are. My lodger describes me as the most social antisocial person he's ever met or the most antisocial social person uh, he's ever met we all have those two things that exist at the same time and actually i imagine even even those kids who are bullied at school if those people spent a little bit of time working out the different sides of them rather than just this this surface thing so many comedians it's, it's amazing every every now and then a comic will come along and uh they'll be really surprised by how many stand-ups love football so loads of my friends absolutely are obsessed with football and you look at these people and you look at josh widdicombe or you look at uh joe wilkinson or you look at um Tim Key or Alex Horn, you look at the Daniel Kitson, you look at the ones who are a little bit nerdy and you go, what? Uh, Noel Fielding. Noel Fielding from Bake Off is the perfect example of the goth, uh, the weirdo, the artist. People love him. They're like, oh, wow, he's so quirky and he's so Noel. Noel Fielding is one of the best footballers I've ever played football with. He's yeah. absolutely he's brilliant at football uh, he's got an amazing touch uh, he's got a brilliant passing game he's absolutely brilliant um, and people just don't see that you know at school when you talk about being the jock type people always think of uh, of that idea of the best footballer has to be like the good looking guy at school don't they the David Beckham star yeah. figure I always think about Peter Beardsley this weird, this weird looking bloke who at his time was just an amazing, an amazing, Beardsley, amazing. Beardsley and Shearer, that, that Beardsley Shearer era, mate, those two together. Unbelievable. Oh. Yeah, it was absolutely unbelievable. And that idea, that idea that just because you look a particular way or just because you act a particular way, that that is the only thing you can do. So if you are the nerd, you're like, oh, brilliant, you're going to like uh, Lord of the Rings and you're going to like Dungeons and Dragons. And the fact of the matter is, you can like Lords of the Rings, you can like Dungeons and Dragons, but you can also be absolutely obsessed with Euro 96 or 
follow Bristol City everywhere. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And that's, I think as you get older, you start realising stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you people don't realise, and so many adults as well, it shocked me, don't realise how you, you're never finished. You're never a finished product. Like, when yeah. you're a kid, you're so unfinished. You're so, so I have a hashtag that's on all my Instagrams. If you look back through every Instagram post I've ever posted, there's always a hashtag, and it's really associated with me, and it's hashtag my Lego life. And uh, I say to people, what it means is, you're given all these bits, you get this pack when you're born, and they're all the bits to make your life. And you can make it amazing and brilliant and creative and beautiful. And then at some point, something, your dad's going to walk in the room or your mum's going to hoover and they're going to knock it over and all the bits are going to fall to pieces. Now you can leave them all broken and shattered and little elements of what used to be your life. Or you can gather them all back up and you can build something even better than you had before. And that's what my Lego life comes from. And so many people build their life and they're, yeah, I'm happy with that. As for me, I look at it and I would always be thinking, if I move that red block and that blue <laughs> block behind, that would make something different. And I think so many people just assume you're a finished product. And when you're a kid and when you're 20, when I go back, I look at my daughter now who's 19, and I, like, she infuriates me. She drives me insane because I'm like, you just don't know and you don't know how much of a child you are i'm like can you remember when you were 15 she's like yeah i'm like what do you think oh what a stupid little kid i'm like right when you're 21 in two years time you're going to look back and you're going to think the 19 year old you was a stupid little kid i was like <laughs> and then when you're 26 you're going to look at the 21 year old and think you're a silly little kid then when you're 30 you'll look at the 21 year old and think i can't believe you thought you were grown up and that for me is how my life goes i constantly look back and i think like this was broken, that was broken, oh, this, I can't believe I used to be a bit like this. And I think so many people are that. They're still a little bit broken and they hold on to the fact they're broken instead of embracing it and thinking where you're going to be if you keep going forward and moving forward. So I'll be honest with you, like, you're totally and utterly right. And, and I say all that stuff about people having different types of personalities within them and you can all do this but when i mentioned being in miss millies with, with these guys who i think of just for or being in a fight in witch church and i see them all in there and they're covered in blood i automatically tense up my my bum cheeks tense a little bit i'm always like oh god and i grew up in brislington and i went out with a girl in witch church and i've had friends from Noel and Artcliff and that that's my side of the of town. But I've always I've always seen those guys and I don't drink, so I don't go to pubs and I don't spend time in those places. I do often feel a little bit tense, a little bit on edge when I see those people, not realizing and not giving them the benefit of the doubt that actually all of those people who like that stuff have got other sides of their personality as well. And I think, I don't know how to get over that. Maybe I need to go to some of these places a bit more. Maybe I need to see one of these guys in Miss Millie's covered in blood and just pull out a small book of poetry. And I'll go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I can see. But has that surprised, has that surprised you with the people? Have you ever been utterly surprised by some of these fighters that you've met and worked with? Yeah, and I, so a lot of the time it's people are surprised with me. Um, 
birds of prey do it for a lot of people when they see a fly birds of prey like, that's weird you're an mma fighter who jumps off buildings but you love birds of prey and i'm like listen if i could only do one thing for the rest of my life if i had to give up mma give up base jumping give up fishing and you said i can only do one thing forever falconry would be the one i'd keep like that and that blows people's minds i mean i'm like you don't understand the bond between me and one bird and i see other uh MMA fighters who focus a lot on yoga or they write or they finish their MMA and they get a podcast and you hear them talk and you're like, wow, inside you were you were fighting, but a lot of the time you weren't enjoying the fighting process. It was just what you did and you were longing to actually do write music or play an instrument. And because of the sort of person that I am, it's not so much that I'm shocked by it, but I'm sort of like, ah, this is this is 90% of people. This is, and especially the people who are successful. Lots of the guys who are actually successful, you'll find that MMA is such an obsession for them that their actual other sides are very much um, a, a different side of the coin. It's not hunting or it's not brutal. It's something completely different. And you hear it about, you know, oh, when I sit down, I just like to sit down for an hour and have a scotch and listen to Vivaldi. And you're like, where the hell is this come from? <laughs> And you understand that actually a lot of fighters are are um, they're obsessed with what they do and they're obsessed with getting better at fighting. But it's not because of a love of fighting. It's just what they do and they're obsessed with that. And then they have this other thing, which has been a suppressed obsession for years, which in actuality, that's their real that's the real side of their personality. That they haven't been able to show, you know, a lot of fighting yeah. is fake as well. A lot of fighting is fake um, in that. You you train really hard to to beat someone up, but at the same time, you don't really enjoy beating somebody up, and you are a little bit scared and a little bit nervous. And when as soon as the fight's over, your only actual emotion is relief. Oh, thank God that's over! Thank God I haven't got a fight anymore, and I can go and I can go back to training, and I can, you know. So a lot of it is fake, and you're doing it. Everyone does it for different reasons, I guess, but you're doing it to win that fight and to test what what you've been training to do i guess i've got this big thing in stand-up at the moment where i get really annoyed by the lack of diversity in it so so many stand-ups in in bristol i'm working on a project which was going quite nicely and then when all this happened it has to be put on hold of it but we'll get back into it uh in the autumn about especially in bristol trying to get not just more people of color not just more black and asian people but also more working class people doing stand-up because you go into the new at nights in bristol a lot of the people you see are just white middle class boys mm -hmm. and i grew up uh, i'm beautifully middle class now but i grew <laughs> up as a proper working class lad my guess is that mma is probably the opposite like i guess that you work with a lot of, or and have met a lot of working class lads a lot of and women a lot of black kids a lot of asian like is 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 diversity in mma mma quite more good? so well more so now so i'm i'm council estate from stockwood born and bred never had anything mum was like mum had to claim because she was single parent for a lot of it then i had a stepdad yeah, Bristol, Stockwood and Bristol, yeah. But Bristol? Oh, no, 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 mate. I went to Broadlands. Oh, okay. I wasn't yeah. allowed. Bristol wouldn't have me because uh, I wasn't the best behaved. 
I had, I had really good grades, but all my friends were going to, to Briz and they were like, we need to keep Wes away from people who, so I had to go to Broadlands. So I went to Broadlands and I didn't last too long there and I had to go somewhere. Long story. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> but, uh, and then, uh, so yes, born and bred, council estate kid, that's how I was. And when I first started MMA, there was no MMA. It was cage fighting and there were seven of us in the country that did it. And then now it's, it went through an evolution where, lots and lots of counselors they kick the hard nuts would come but then they quickly realized actually i'm not fucking hard here i'm not i'm, I'm a nobody and they weed out really quickly actually and then you get the people who are there they might be counselor state but they're they're not even in the core group or they're not they're not even part of the hard guys they're just people who start doing it and they get absolutely obsessed with the what they can learn they never even go on to try and be hard they just obsessed with the technical side of it and then now we have a lot more women coming in the sport i teach uh still only i've got one woman who's part of my fight team now and there's never more than say two which is a bit of a shame it would be nice to have three four five women in in a class but yeah a lot more racially or ethnically there's a lot more uh groups and a lot more asian and black people i've actually i cornered and I was offered a job to coach out in India, coaching MMA, because there was a big show in India called Super Fight League. Um, so Indian MMA went went through the roof, really. So, yeah, it is very much over the last five to ten years, well, five years specifically, diversity in MMA has really, really gained, like, gone through the roof. It's no longer, yeah, it's no longer your, your hard nut or your person who wants to become a hard nut. And also you've got Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu people are like, a lot of them are your real geeks. They get so into jiu-jitsu. They get so into the technical side of it. And then they migrate over as well. So it is very diverse now. Yeah, very, very diverse. Oh, that's good. I'm really glad about that. Because it's really, I really like kind of, it's something that I think there is a problem in stand-up, especially outside of London. When you start looking at cities, not just Bristol, but Manchester, Newcastle, and I'm talking to a lot of people about it where you just go, it's the same people. And what I want to see are stories from stories from people that I don't know and also stories that I don't know. So yeah. I want everyone to have that opportunity. I want there to be, you know, 2020s version of Wes coming down from Stockwood on the bus down the on the 57. Is it a 57? No. Uh, is the 57 still going? It was the 54 and 57. Yeah, the 54 went to Wells Road, 57 down through Brislington. Yeah, I, want, I, want, I want an 18-year-old kiddie who didn't get on well at Bristol and had to go to Broadlands, and I want them to go, oh, do you know what? I want to do stand-up. I want to get the bus into town, and I want to go and do that. I want kiddies from Southmead and Eastern and you know Lot Lees and everywhere who think, Oh, do you know what? I can do this because I think their stories and their style of stand-up will be just interested and different and varied. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people who aren't engaged in stand-up don't realise how diverse it is. So, like, the styles, like, when you watch, like, so Morgan, Morgan's a, he's one of, he always stands out for me, which is why I've used him again. He always, there's lots of great comics I've gigged with in the UK in the short period that I've done it, but Morgan stands out for me in the, Morgan tell, doesn't tell big long stories. His jokes are quite concise. They're quite short. And boom, he's onto another one. And then this one's a little bit of a story to it, but the punchline's there, and it's very captivating. My style of 
um, comedy is I have a story or a scenario of something that happened and it's grossly exaggerated or twisted somewhat or I think this is what actually happened what would have happened if this happened and it's just and my dad has said to me before because my dad's been to a couple of times watch me do open mic and he's seen me uh seen me like practicing or whatever and then uh he says um a couple, he's giving me like pointers and I'm like dad it's not so much that I'm trying to make people laugh I'm it's not that I'm trying to tell jokes is that this style is me and if people find that funny that's the brilliant bit it's not the fact of can i make people laugh it's can i make people laugh with this that i've created and a lot of my some of my stuff's quite misogynistic and a bit like uh and it's but then there's a twist on it that turns around on me so it's quite misogynistic and you're looking a bit and then uh, boom the, the punchline comes that i look like the prat at the end of it or something like that and it's it's not that I'm I'm not a misogynist in the slightest, very much the opposite, but I find the humour in misogyny. I think it's hilarious. And I find that um, you know, look, I I'm a, as much as a man can be a feminist, you know, I'm, I'm all equal rights, feminism, perfect. I'm into all those things, but I find the humor within not being a feminist in, you know, in <laughs> It, I find little bits like that funny, so I'll try and hang on to them. But then you come out with a five to ten minute block story with four or five little jokes or humour in it. And then you've got someone like Morgan or you've got someone like Jimmy Carr then who's quite like one-liner-ish. And, and I see all these different styles and I think people don't realise that. They think stand-up is stand-up. Like, oh, I don't like stand-up. I never really laugh. And I'm like, hang on. Hang on. What do you mean? Well, I went and saw so-and-so once. I'm like, but that's a, like, do you like heavy metal music? No. It's like, so then you don't like classical? Well, no, I do like, but this is what you're saying to me. I think people don't, don't really don't understand is the, the styles of stand-up. Stand-up is just, it's just, you could call it getting on stage. The, the whole thing should be called getting on stage because stand-up is just the, the process. That's just the process. I'm going to stand up. No? Yeah. And, uh, that for me is what excites me. And that's why I've never had anything in my life that I thought, well, um, once MMA's over, I'm going to be happy. Like, I, I know I can do this and I won't regret not having MMA anymore. But I know, other than this podcast, and I love podcasting, if I could make a career at podcasting, I, I would probably be happy. I really enjoy talking to other people. And this is about you, which I love. Um, and then you can make it about me again. And I love that side of things. But other than that stand-up comedy, I know I could be happy writing it, trying it, doing it differently, you know? Oh well, let's hope. Uh, let's hope when all this is over, we can uh, we can get you gigging as often as you can. Yeah, that's the, that's the the plan, mate. I mean, it's um, I find it hard in the I, for me. I find it hard the gateway to to further gigs and stuff. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I've got all the open mics in Bristol, and I know most people, so I can drop them a message and I can say, I'm, I'm about tonight. Have you got a spot? And they might be, oh, where's yeah? We know we can get where's on. I'm in that sort of stage, but I, I'm one of those people who I'd love to do a five hour journey to go and do a five minute open mic spot somewhere. I, I'm, I'm happy to do that, you know, so that would be my goal next. Is to... oh, it'll come. Yeah, it'll come. I always give myself every, I always think of comedy years as like school years, usually September to July. And I always try every year uh, to give myself something else, another another step another thing in my progression 
Um, and I've always been able to do that. And I think it's not a race, but if you do keep that in your mind that, you know, by this time next year, by April 2021, you will have wanted to have gigged in that city and that city and that place and gone there and that type of gig. Those are really manageable goals to to get. And you keep the goals manageable and you reach them. Something quite exciting about reaching those goals. So you'll you'll want to do them again and again. Yeah, definitely. Um, who were your uh, what were your influences, mate, in your comedy? Do you have any big influences or did was it very much a, a find your own feet kind of thing? You no, know what like I said earlier with the American comics that I loved, like they were the ones that I loved. But I very quickly realised that I wasn't going to be that type of comic. The mm-hmm. stuff I wrote at the beginning was quite political and quite interesting, but that ain't me. That's not me at all. Um, so when I started, when I started gigging with people, when I started making friends with other stand-ups and seeing proper circuit comedians, um, these headliners who do the comedy clubs who don't often get on TV, but you go, oh, wow, they are amazing. So when I started gigging and started being able to work with Glenn Wall and Andrew Maxwell and Craig Campbell and a couple of the Australians like um, Kitty Lee and Sarah Kendall and and then friends of mine and people that I I gigged with uh, when they started, like Jimmy Carr, like Russell, like Michael McIntyre, and so my influences were always sort of were very quickly the people that I gigged with were the people on the the scene. And and when I started in the late nineties, you talk about knowing all the the comics in Bristol. You know, you know most of them. You know, blah blah blah. When I was when I had started, not only did I know all the comics in Bristol. We were all the comics in Bristol. You know, there were at one point there were three or four of us. I mean, at one point, ninety percent of the Bristol comedy scene lived in the same flat in Clifton because me, Russell, John Richardson, and John Robbins all lived together, uh, and and so I knew them all, and they were the people who influenced me, and the people who people like. People that most people might not know, like Gavin Webster and Ben Norris and uh, Gordon Southern and people like Danny Boy and some of these people who are now really famous, uh, like um, like Mickey Flanagan and John Bishop, were people who, when I started, uh, were circuit comics. Greg Davis and and people like that were people that I knew. So, So for you... That will happen because the people that you gig with, not all of them, but the people that you gig with will go on to become not just famous comics, but brilliant circuit comics who people go, oh, God, I love that person. I love watching them. Um, So, yeah, so influence. But I still love the Americans. I still love uh, Chris Rock and Richard Pryor and uh, Bill Hicks and Steve Martin and Mort Sahl and uh woody allen stand up in the 50s and lots of that sort of stuff but yeah. really it's about do you know what it is it's when you do when you do a shitty little gig in yeovil and you're on there's a guy who, who 
sadly died last year and next week is a year anniversary of his death a guy called ian cognito um uh, yeah the story became quite big when he died because he died literally on stage stage, Uh, my friend andrew bird uh, it was his gig and he was comparing um yeah cogs was headlining went on been a little bit poorly before and at one point sat on a chair closed his eyes and just went just died on stage and um when that happened because it happened in such a weird way and also cogs was the comedian's comedian he was someone that everyone absolutely loved <laughs> Lo- loved it's a difficult word because he was crazy so loved and tolerated and admired <laughs> and feared and was astounded by and was <laughs> petrified and disappointed and all those are words to describe Cogs because he was amazing like you can love Bill Burr or you can love Chris Rock or you can love I don't know Jimmy Kimmel or Michael McIntyre or anyone but it's not until you drive to a gig in Yeovil on a Tuesday night in front of 30 people and it's a bit horrible and it's February and it's raining and then you see someone like Cox do what he can do that's when your perception of comedy changes because you go holy shit it's like it's like magic like being that close to someone doing that but that's like that was you for me that was that like that was you for me because it was it felt almost like someone had just spotted you sat there and said like oh oh Mark you'll jump up won't you and then out of nowhere you come up and I remember you took the piss out of this bloke's collapse there was a gay couple there and you took the piss out of this guy's trousers so they were like and I was sat there thinking I bet none of them get the collapse reference and for me but my sister had collapse so I was I was fucking dead and then you're telling me this stuff and then you went on and told the story about the car and uh, an ex in a car and I'm like this fucking guy and I'm stood there and the you've had those moments I'm sure where everything else is the periphery is gone there's one thing in your vision everything else is gone and you're like what and that that was you for me you were the first person i'd seen other comics and i'd been you know my first ever stand-up was in san diego i was in a comedy club and i noticed the open mic night where i got enough people i was like fuck it i'll go for it and that's my first ever one so then i've been i've seen lots of comedians but in that setting where i've gone and i've done a bit and it didn't go particularly great and it didn't go particularly shit to have someone who came on and then the world to stand still for a minute because you're just like fuck this is this is it that that is it that is it i said that's the epitome of what we're doing i mean that is an incredibly nice thing to say but what i would say is that you need to get out more i would say (laughs) you uh, you need to experience more uh if i did that to you just you wait until you see craig campbell or uh brendan burns at his finest just those and that's what i i'm a I'm a, I got into comedy because I loved comedy and that's kind of, uh, I like that I can have that, that impact on people. And I also like that I can do that for one person and 
4,000 people in the Hippodrome or whatever. Um, but what really inspires me is people being able to go and see all the other stuff, all the amazing stand-up, and do it because if you can do it and get involved in it, it's an amazing, amazing world to be involved in. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't obviously give anyone any advice in, in stand-up comedy. I'm not a comedian. I have no place to give people advice. Well, that's interesting. But... Before you're just about to say what you're going to say, whatever you're going to say, I think is relevant. And the reason is, is because I think whatever level you're at at stand-up, if you can give advice to the person below you, and so you've only just started, if you can give advice to the people below you, what you do by giving advice to the people below you is you work that advice out yourself and you help yourself. So by teaching people, you probably have it in MA when you're coaching. When you're coaching someone in MMA, you're also thinking about the processes and the things that you do for yourself. So even though you haven't done loads and loads of gigs, you can still give people experience or information from the certain number of gigs you've done. So, well, uh, so, uh, so I did a, like a gong show the other day. Um, it was the shittest experience of my life, but um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, I mean, I, I literally, I went on stage and, the guy before me uh, got gonged off, like, and he's like, they came off and they were like, what happened? He's like, I mentioned dick, and then I got gonged, and Joe Riley looked at me, he's like, you're fucked. I was like, I am, because <laughs> he knows, like, my act's quite misogynistic, it's going to be talk about dick, he looked at me like, you're fucked. I was like, mom, so I go out there, literally, my opening, the opening line is, oh, that was confident like that big dick energy he was here the big dick energy boom straight i looked and liam had to say like whoa 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 30 seconds before it comes out i was like if you if you can't even hear the word dick i am screwed but it, so anyway i went off it, it, i bombed it didn't go well i did about two and a half minutes came off and um go off and some girls there she's like oh i saw you last time i was like Oh, did you? She went, yeah, you performed here, did like a, a five-minute open spot. I was like, yeah, that's right. She went, oh, I'm doing the gong tonight. I was, I said, are you? She goes, yeah, the only reason I'm doing it is because I've been gigging for the last couple of months because when I saw you, I spoke to you. You were the only comedian I spoke to, and you said to me, just do it. What's the worst that can happen? Like, either people are laugh or they won't, but at least you've managed to do what you set out to do. And I was like, I can't believe that me... And she spoke to me because obviously I'm not a comedian. I'm just an open micer who I sat next to her. She spoke to me. I spoke back to her. And the fact that I had said that to her, the only advice was just do it. What's the worst it can? But it was enough <laughs> to push to push her, and she went and did it. You know. So I Brilliant. find that quite cool. If it, like like you say, yeah, you just. I mean, I wouldn't give people tips and advice. I'm I'm not in position to. But to say to someone, just do it. Like because I am that sort of person who's not scared of bombing. And not scared of being embarrassed to to be able to say to them, just do it. Just no matter how scared you are, just do it. And once it's done, then yeah, perhaps that is advice that everyone can use. You know, perfect, absolutely perfect. But um, mate, so before I let you go, uh, you have to give two tips to everybody to help them um get through the lockdown. Nothing to do with comedy, but you have to give two lockdown tips. Put you on the spot. Let's go. What are you advising people to do? You know what? I am. Uh, I've been training for this my entire life <laughs> uh, because 
there is nothing that professional stand-ups are better at than wasting time. Like, <laughs> we are perfect at it. If you do uh, a weekend gig, and maybe they'll get you a hotel on the Friday night, and then you get chucked out of that hotel at 11 a.m. the next day, and you have to wait until uh, 8 p.m. to go to the gig, um, or doing a TV where you just sit around for ages. The thing about the lockdown is it could, we don't know when it's going to finish, but boring. It goes <laughs> on and on and on. And so this is a really simple tip. This is a biggie, but if you are binge watching something, if you're doing a sitcom, um, you can bash out three episodes of that sitcom in an hour. If you're really bored, you can probably do the entire 22 episode first series of Community in six hours. So take your time, watch an episode, go and have a pee. Uh, watch an episode, uh, uh, go and make yourself a cup of tea. Don't go for a pee, then make a cup of tea and then do the rest of the episodes. Just take your time with everything because the one thing we have got at the moment is time and it's not a race that job that you're worried about not doing you're going to be able to do it tomorrow because we're still going to be here yeah well <laughs> so, my biggest regret my biggest lockdown regret is i finished tiger king in a day and i didn't have anywhere else to go i was there, screwed there you go i've not even started it yet I've oh not what you don't know how much I'd give right now. I'm not even longing to be the comedian that you are. I'm longing to have not seen Tiger King and be in the position that you're in. And this is my advice number two, which is wait. In the day, try and put off Netflix or Amazon. Try and put off the things that you collapse into for as long in the day as possible. So do the admin jobs, uh, do the shower, do the cooking, do the cleaning the house, go for the walk and do all of that stuff before you then vegetate for the rest of the day. Because when you're there, you can just enjoy it. You can just revel in it. So yeah. I'm opposite than you. I will wake up as late as possible. I will do as much admin as possible i will do anything what time is it now it's like getting on for half two and i've done nothing all day which means that i've only got a few hours until that moment where i'm like okay now i can just sit and watch netflix and then i can just do that for the rest of the evening um and, and that so those would be my and actually they're the same they're two bits of advice but they're the same they are just take your time, just chill out. Yeah. Or you, I think you that, don't want to you don't want to complete lockdown on week one. Like lock, <laughs> I'm completing it, and then you're like, oh fuck, I'm here for a month. Yeah, I get it. I get it, mate. hundred percent. I'm just take. I've got and I've got different things. So I've got a bit of comic books. I've got a bit of uh, TV. I've got a bit of Lego. I've got a bit of walking. I've got a bit of cooking and like. 
And as the day goes on, you start to realise, okay, I'll just do those those little tasks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great advice. I mean, my my TV won't doesn't go on till about six. No, I'm lying. Usually five or six is the chase. I never miss a chase. So that's <laughs> when it goes on. But then after that, I'll train again. So then I don't ever sit down to about eight because I'm writing or I'm you know trying to do this or do something, prepare my quiz. So great piece of advice. I uh, I like that, mate. Um. Mate, what, where can people find you, follow you? Belly Laughs is the other thing you referred to a little bit earlier. The project that you're doing with Belly Laughs um, is fantastic. Uh, I'd like anyone who's listening to check out the Belly Laughs. It is Belly Laughs, isn't it? I've got that right. Yeah. Belly Laughs. Um, so it's, I think it's Belly Laughs 2 for some reason on Twitter. Mark Olver on Twitter. Mark John Olver on Instagram. And Belly Laughs is really interesting because of what we're doing at the moment. Because Belly Laughs really quickly, is a charity that I set up a couple of years ago to put on gigs in restaurants, specifically in January, because I know how difficult it is for restaurants in January, because people don't go out in January. So I put on a gig, the restaurant gets the food money, so they get that bit of business, and then the, the audience pay an extra tenner usually, uh, and that money goes straight to a homeless charity, and in Bristol it's the Julian Trust. Um, and the reason that that's becoming relevant again is what we're going through at the moment is as soon as this is finished, all of those businesses are going to need business back in them. Now, hopefully people are just going to want to go out and just going to want to eat all the time and do all the things that they haven't been done. But if it's slow, if people are a bit reluctant to go back to their favourite restaurants, whatever. I'm just going to start doing belly laughs gigs and start doing them in, whether it's July, whether it's August, whether it's June. So those businesses can start getting that money straight away. Yeah. But also the, the homeless shelters need the money because people aren't donating because so many of us are skimp. And also I do a lot of work with belly laughs with a charity called Fair Share who do amazing stuff with food surplus uh, distributing that to food banks and rehab centres and domestic abuse centres and after school clubs and, and all that sort of stuff. So basically Belly Laughs is really on a where food and comedy can try and work together to do something good for charity and that's kind of, we're going to need that in a couple of months time so I'm just waiting, I've got things, I'm putting things in place, I'm getting projects going and then as soon as whatever happens finishes but we can try and start it again so that's the yeah, plan perfect perfect i'm looking forward to that and uh i'll be at a few definitely um you have some amazing headliners so ones that um ones that people will recognize from the tv other names that people might not recognize like you have some incredible acts on your belly laugh shows so <laughs> everyone should get to them and what's that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 100%. You you let me know when and I'm there. I'll never turn down a gig. This is what um, I like to see. <laughs> Mate, listen, thank you so much for doing this. And um, hopefully we'll get you on in the not-too-distant future. I like to do, like, follow-up ones and see how the lockdowns are. So in a couple of months, we'll see how you're trying to rehabilitate yourself back into everyday life that the lockdown's over. These beards will be hopefully longer than yours by then. <laughs> I hope so, too. Don't I call I call a shave a sex change? So <laughs> I'm gonna give it a go. Uh, Wes, it was great chatting, and I'll see you soon. Likewise, mate. Thank you very much for joining me.
Take care, buddy. Sex change, so... <laughs> I'm going to give it a go. Uh, Wes, it was great chatting, and I'll see you soon. Likewise, mate. Thank you very much for joining me. Take care, buddy.